Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis on the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's transfer podcast, it's your questions answered. Guys, we're going to start off with a tweet from VJ Karthik. He's asked, if City is built for Pep, can we say Wolves is built for the special one? Ian, you have some news and information regarding a potential Chelsea target that could uh, set off a domino effect in other areas that could well lead to this question becoming quite relevant. Indeed, Johnny. Um, we do like to be relevant as much as we can. And I'm sorry to say, people, yes, I've still got the hay fever uh, that I had last Monday. Um, but uh, yeah, Nuno Espirito Santo, the um, Portuguese coach who has done um, miracles, really, uh, when you think of where Wolverhampton Wanderers were, um, also, of course, he's had uh, the benefit of very good advice in the market from one George Mendes. Um, at the same time, uh, he has put together at Wolverhampton Wanderers um, a very impressive se- first season in the Premier League, which has attracted the attention of the people who make decisions at Chelsea. And we know that Maurizio Sarri's days are numbered there. Um, yet more fan unrest uh, after recent results, especially the defeat at Everton. And um, Sarri himself appears to be resigned to the fact that he will not be resigning, but will be sacked uh, in the summer. So Chelsea uh, actively looking for a new coach. They do very much like uh, what Nuno's done. They like his, not just his style of play and his kind of, um, uh, his whole sort of way of managing, but it's, it's also his personality. They see him as someone very calm, who clearly has a very good media profile. Uh, doesn't pick fights, um, unless, of course, they're with uh, uh, the manager of uh, Cardiff City and um, now and again. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, that would be a very good fit for Chelsea. But if I were Nuno, I'd be asking myself, why would you leave Wolves and the stability and uh, backing that he's got there to go into the chaos of Chelsea, um, who seem to sack a manager almost every sort of 12 to 18 months? You might fancy living in London rather than Wolverhampton, Ian. Well, indeed. I mean, London's a big draw for, for uh, many footballers, football managers, obviously. Uh, Jose Mourinho, who we mentioned in the question, um, still retains his, his home in West London and his family home. And um, for Nuno, obviously, it would be a promotion from Wills. Uh, and and I, I'm not sure you know, what his lifestyle is like in the black country. But, um, you know, I've got some friends up there. They seem to like it. So... Um, I think his footballing life would certainly be more uh, calm if he stayed at Wolves. And, and indeed, there must be an aspect for, for Nuno, who seems to me to be a, quite a loyal person. Um, I don't know him that well or, or personally uh, as such, but he seems to me to be someone who might just want to complete the job rather than, you know, having gotten to seventh in the Premier League in an FA Cup semi-final. Maybe 
I mean, who knows? With more backing investment in, in the transfer window this summer, perhaps he could get top six and get European football for for Wolves. Now, that would be a massive achievement. Um, not to mention, of course, they may go on and win the FA Cup this season and get Europa League anyway. Yeah, I, I think while it is a factor, um, the, the attraction of London for football managers, I think a football manager's job at the top level is so intense and so demanding that uh, where you're working really isn't that great a factor. Um, there's not a huge amount of time to enjoy the city you're living in anyway. So uh, the priority is, is a, an assessment of which is the best club to be at from, from your career perspective, from what you can achieve on the football pitch, what you can achieve going forward. And I think Ian's analysis is, uh, is rock solid there. It's why would you want to move to Chelsea, the club that sacks managers, sacks every manager, on a regular basis that um, has an owner who wants to sell the club, uh, has a, a chief executive who has, has stalled on appointing a director of football because she wants to control transfers herself, um, whose best player wants to leave the club, um, who's fa- which is facing a, a two-window transfer ban, um, which <laughs> there's an argument that Wolves are actually a better football team at present than Chelsea are in, in the whole in terms of the way they, they function on the field um, because they've been built with a project in mind. And you also know Wolves, they're going to carry on building with that project in mind. This is, you know, this is only half the job, if that. Uh, there's plenty of financial resources available. Um, there's real ambition on the part of the owners. There's a coherent strategy going forward. They're happy with you as a manager. Um, so... Why change? Uh, and I, th- I think it would be, even if Nuno had the interest in changing, I think uh, I think Wolves would have, would put a big fight um, to ensure that he stayed with them. Um, and I think that probably answers the, the the listeners' question: If if City is built for for uh, for Pep, can we say Wolves is built for the special one? No, I don't think it is. I don't think it's ever been. Uh, built for Jose Mourinho. There's no, not been the expectation he would come there. There's not been the expectation he would be available. Um, it's been built as a football project around primarily around the players, primarily around getting high-quality players further into the championship and proving you can get out of the championship by playing football, which interestingly is something that Leeds United have followed up on this season as a strategy which people thought you couldn't do. Uh, and then you can carry on playing football, um, playing tactically intelligent but um, technically based football in the Premier League and ascend the Premier League very quickly. And there, you know, the stated aim of the owners is to be in the Champions League. The stated aim is to emulate what Manchester City has done. Maybe that's going too far. Maybe they, they can't get to where Manchester City have done. But they certainly want to go a lot higher than they are now. And, and as I say, the project's been built around players and then getting a coach who can work with those players. And I don't see why, um, even if Jose Mourinho wanted that job at the moment, why um, Wolves would, would change for Mourinho when they've got a working project with a coach who, who ticks the boxes for them. If you bring Mourinho in there, it probably gets a lot more complicated because he will have his ideas about where he wants the team to be and he will have the, a weight of expectation on his shoulders because of his history as a coach that Nuno doesn't have um, and would bring probably unwelcome attention to the club in the sense that Josie Mourinho's a big name, media come and follow him and they, they 
uh, examine everything he does in fine detail, whereas Nuno isn't a big name. Wolves aren't a big name as a club, so they can kind of get on with what they have to do, sort of in the background, and probably be more successful because of that. We have a question now from regular questioner Brett Ramirez, and it's another good one today. He asks, with the potential penalties Man City may be hit with, including Champions League ban, transfer ban, etc., is Pep Guardiola likely to move with two or three years left on his contract? And if so, where would he go? I don't think he will move. I think he, he's been asked about this and he said um, his intention is to stay at the club. He's repeatedly said, stated that he has faith in the owners and the executives of Manchester City who have told him that they haven't broken the rules and that this will go away. Um, I think his phrasing is interesting in that he always lays it off on the executives, makes it clear that it's got nothing to do with him. But um, his stated position is, I believe we're going to be exonerated from all this because my employers have told me we're going to be exonerated and I do not want to leave the club and it will not affect um, my legacy um, if we are punished. Um, and I think I think there's a there's another element here, which is something we've talked about with Manchester City. Is Manchester City don't lose um, employees against their will. They don't let players who are attracted by other clubs go to those clubs unless they want that player to go. Um, their, their top stars have always remained there. They've always been retained. And I think with Guardiola, um, even were he to decide he wanted to leave the club. Um, Abu Dhabi would put a huge amount of pressure on him to stay, particularly in these circumstances. Because if it was seen that Guardiola had decided to resign his position and go elsewhere after Manchester City had been punished for breaking um, UEFA regulations, Premier League reg regulations, FA regulations, FIFA regulations, that would be even more of an embarrassment for Abu Dhabi and for the, the Manchester City board because it would be their, their star employee saying, I want out because of this because I'm not happy what's going on. So I think the, the pressure for him to stay would be huge. Um, I don't think he has a plan to leave at this point. Um, I think if you're asking where he would go um, when he does leave, I think you can, it can be a certainty that where he will go will be another club of similar status. It'll be a club with huge resources. It'll be a club with an excellent squad of players to work with. Um, because I think Guardiola knows that he needs all of those things to function um, the way he wants to play football. And I think you see that when he when he's interviewed. He talks about quality of the players on the pitch being paramount and only being able to do certain things when you have top quality players. So I don't think he's foolish enough um, to step down uh, to a, a club where there'll be other challenges to management coaching for him because he knows... I think he knows he, um, it would be too frustrating for him to work with that less, lesser cadre of players. So you're talking when he does eventually leave Manchester City, it will be to another super club with the resources so he can uh, go after the Champions League, which, remember, he hasn't won um, since he had Lionel Messi in his team. I've got a slightly different theory on this, Duncan. Um, first of all, should Pep complete his current contract, which has been extended at Manchester City, it will be the longest he's stayed at any in any one job in his uh, his career as a first team coach, yeah. so that would be some of a milestone for Pep because you know we know that he suffered um, quite badly from burnout uh, after Barcelona 
um, in that final season where he lost the, uh, the La Liga title to, to Jose Mourinho in Real Madrid. He took a year sabbatical as a result and felt he needed to completely recharge before taking on the next project. Then he goes to Bayern Munich and uh, almost halfway through his, his tenure at Bayern Munich, Manchester City appoints uh, his former bosses, Chiki Begeristan and Fern Soriano, uh, to their um, football setup. And immediately they, they go and affect, and Duncan mentioned it, I think, uh, in, in Monday's podcast, the, the Pep was already steering transfers at Manchester City you know, before he joined because Ryan Sterling was one of the players that he wanted bought from Liverpool to, to Manchester City before he even arrived. Now, where my theory diverges from Duncan's is, I am told on, on I think, very good authority that in his contract when he signed his first contract with Manchester City, which, of course, remember, is owned by City Football Group, who own clubs all over the world. He was asked and was given an option that when his contract at Manchester City expired, or indeed he wanted to leave, that he would be offered the job of coaching New York City FC. Uh, now, we know Pep has a very um, beautiful apartment in New York where he, he visits and spends time in holidays. Uh, that he obviously spent during his sabbatical there. And while the MLS would look like a kind of re relative backwater for a coach of Guardiola's standing to go to, especially as he's still young in coach's years, you could see that being almost a kind of semi-sabbatical. So after the pressure of Manchester City for five years, maybe he could go to MLS for a year, maybe two years, live in New York, which he loves to do, um, and then think about what his next job would be. Um, because clearly his status and his CV would not have changed very much, and uh, he'd be making a lifestyle decision as much as anything else to to go to New York. So look out for that um, in terms of you know what Pep does when his uh, time at City comes to an end. Duncan often references the excellent Pep Confidential book, and and in that he discusses how he's made commitments to his wife that he won't be a long term football manager. That the sacrifices the family has made. Will, uh, will mean that he gets out early. Do you guys think that will be the case or will it come down to the fact that his intensity for winning trophies will prevail over any sense of uh, obligation there? I think he fluctuates with that. I think um, if you saw, you look at his statements and his um, disposition after the first season at Manchester City, when it the worst season of his managerial career, won nothing, uh, lots of criticism of the way he'd worked with the team. You, you saw him talking about going off and playing, retiring and playing golf um, after he'd uh, finished his contract at City. So I think it, it, it varies according to how he's doing at a given time. Um, I think he's been quite consistent in saying that he won't um, manage uh, until he's you know in his 60s or 70s. Um, and I you know, you talk to the people around him, you do get the sense that um, that's likely to be true because because of the intensity with which he works and the, intent, the pressure he puts on the people around him, but also puts on himself and, and, and I guess um, as a result on his family. So um, I, I don't think he, he, will, he will coach um, until he gets ill and is, is forced to retire. I think he will be... Uh, He'll stop relatively early, and remember he started relatively early as a coach. Um, I remember Jose Mourinho when he was a, a, a younger coach saying he wasn't going to coach um, for many years, and he planned to retire um, from club 
coaching, I think, in his 50s, and then do a bit of uh, international coaching and stop then. He pretty quickly changed his tune on that and now basically says, I'm going to coach forever because I can't live without doing it. Um, so, yeah, I, I basically depends on what happens to him. Um, in his various jobs, what his response will be. I think that the fundamental thing with um, with Guardiola is he's a quite an emotional, um, bit of a flaky character in in some ways, surprisingly so, given given his job and given the way he he does a lot of his job. Um, there's a there's a sort of core of self questioning and doubt about him, which. Um, which, like most people who have uh, self-doubt, um, is affected by results and what happens to him uh, in, in his job. So it can go either way, but I don't think he'll be there forever. Ironically, and just to, you know, again, answer another aspect of the question, maybe, just maybe, if City do get a Champions League ban for one or two seasons, then it takes the pressure off him because we know that Abu Dhabi are desperate to win the Champions League. Um, but if they're banned from it and therefore they can't compete in it, then Pep's job is made less stressful, less pressured, less pressure for the players, less games to play. They just, you know, they could be dominant in domestic football on the basis that, well, we're not allowed to play in Champions League anyway. So and in some ways, you know, a Champions League ban could be beneficial in an ironic sense for Pep and how he deals with pressure uh, and how he deals with the intensity of it all. Okay, we're moving on to a question now by Went Viral, and he's asked, not a transfer question, but more of an insight. How is it that England call-ups receive the actual call and get to St George's Park? Ian? Yeah, um, it's, it's an interesting one, and, and you know, I, I guess um, everyone's heard a story, haven't they, um, when a player's called up for the first time and they say, oh, I only knew what I saw on telly, or, or when uh, my mum called me to say she said I saw it on the telly. And that, that would be correct because the player himself, individually, does not actually receive a call, not from the England manager, nor even from the FA. The player's club is the first to find out that uh, one of um, their members of staff has been called up for international duty, whether it be uh, under-21s or full senior internationals. So the first uh, conversation which is had is uh, by a, a senior member of the FA staff who is the player's liaison officer, um, and she will call around all of the clubs where the players are being recruited from for the upcoming squad. Then the uh, the club will be the one usually to inform the player. But of course, the actual timing of this could mean that the squad has been announced or even a newspaper or media outlet has broken a story that someone's getting their first call, etc. Et and therefore the player will find out about it secondhand um, from uh, watching television or reading a newspaper, etc. Et uh, what happens after that, of course, is that... Um, the FA's laser officer will then call, and there's a, a team of three. Uh, one of them will call uh, that player, and then they will uh, ask him if he wishes to drive or uh, should they send a car for him to take him to St George's Park to meet up with the squad. Uh, in some cases, obviously, flying's involved, as with Jaden Sancho uh, coming from uh, uh, Borussia Dortmund. Um, of course, that will be a commercial flight, not a private jet. The FA don't, don't get private jets except uh, when the squad travel together to games, as they have done to Montenegro. And um, and so the logistics of it are fairly straightforward, but probably not what um, people would think. And that would be like the idea of Gareth Southgate sitting uh, one morning and calling 25 
football players individually on his mobile phone to say, oh, can you come and join up in the squad? That's absolutely not how it happens. Um, sometimes a manager will, uh, I say the England manager, will call the manager of the players' club and ask about him, uh, his fitness, his suitability to be called up for that particular squad. But that more happens in friendly matches, Johnny. Um, famous, very famous story, which uh, I'd like to recount very quickly. Um, when Sir Alex Ferguson was in charge uh, of Manchester United and Sven Jorn Eriksson was in charge of England, they had a friendly match against Holland, uh, the first first uh, England game of the season. And Sven called Fergie up to say, who can I have, who can't I have, blah, blah. And Sven um, said to him, well, don't worry. I'm playing my strongest team in the first half, so I guarantee your boys will only play 45 minutes. So Fergie said, right, OK, you can have Beck, Scolzi, blah, 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 you know, all the rest. So then um, Sven calls up uh, Louis van Gaal, who was the, the Holland manager at the time, and says the same thing to him. Van Gaal then speaks to Fergie. They find out what Sven's tactics are, i.e. he's going to play his best team in the first half. Van Gaal plays his best team in the second half. England lose 2-0 in the second half because, because they fail to score with a, the, their best team. And, oh, you know, I wonder if someone might have had a bet on that. I, uh, I read this question a different way uh, rather than the logistics of it. I read it as um, England players get the call up and they actually turn up as opposed to um, players from other nations, for example, Scotland. Um, and I think the answer to that is because it's more attractive um, to play for England at present. I think um, part of it is uh, a monetary aspect, um, the status of the England team. Uh, and being an England international, it gives you exposure and allows you uh, it allows your agents to demand more money um, for transfer fees, for wages, um, in particular, um, and higher commissions. We should point um, out, Duncan. Sorry to interrupt you. We should point out that England players don't actually benefit from playing for England. They don't get paid. All the match fees and bonuses are paid to the England Footballers Foundation, which is a charity which um, has partner charities, which they then fund through the players' uh, wages and bonuses. So, so that's, I think it's important to point out. Yeah, and international football, in general, the wages, when they are paid, if they don't hand them over to charity, as England players have agreed to do, aren't high compared to what you can get at the, the top tier of the Premier League. Um, you know, it's, it's commitment to the national team is the important thing. Um, there's certainly players playing for the national team because they want to. And I think the, the dynamic with England has changed across the last two years and the team is now successful. Um, so there's a positivity around the team and playing for England that there hasn't been for years and years and years. I mean, I covered a lot of England internationals and the, the support in inverted commas from the crowd was uh, never at the same level as you'd, you'd hear from uh, the, the equivalent club sides and would turn against the players very quickly if things went wrong, um, which isn't surprising given that uh, the majority of the fans have always uh, support a different club from the one you play for. Therefore, if you do something wrong in the pitch, there's a big chunk of the, of, the, of the crowd who are used to booing you and used to questioning what you do and used to not liking you. So they turn against you very quickly when things go wrong in the field. So I think that there, there's... Things have changed for England in that they see, you know, they talk about themselves as being uh, Nations League winners when that competition 
that comes about. They're now being talked about as being one of the favourites to win the Euros. And obviously players want to be involved uh, in successful teams. So that helps uh, foster competition and helps get the players on the pitch. And I think you, you see the direct benefit in, the, in players such as Declan Rice, who had been who have the choice of national teams to play for, um, had actually been capped for Ireland but didn't have a competitive fixture to his name and then has been persuaded by Gareth Southgate to change allegiance and join the England squad, join the England team, much in the way in the same way as a player can be persuaded to leave a you know an inferior championship or Premier League side to move to a bigger Premier League side because of the prospect of greater success is there by uh, switching teams. Um, so I think all of those things are helping England at the moment um, and that's why the players actually hear the call um, and uh, get to St George's Park and, and England obviously have better chance of getting good results because they've got more competition uh, and better uh, and a larger group of players to choose from. Here's a question for you both from at Johnny R. McFarlane. That's me. <laughs> Do you feel that there is a definite future for international football 50 years down the line, given the increasing polarisation that we see in the club game, the more money going into the top European clubs? Do you feel the status quo can continue to coexist? Are you allowed to use the word me following your promotion? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it's a, valid, it's a valid one, Johnny, in terms of um, the possibility, especially when you see meetings between UEFA and ECA last week talking about changes to the Champions League to try and persuade the major clubs not to effectively think about a breakaway uh, sort of European Super League uh, outside of UEFA's auspices. Um, the, what's happening, though, is FIFA, uh, in terms of national football, and UEFA to an extent as well, are trying to fight back. So, for instance, you know, the 48-team World Cup um, will mean more games in the less uh, space of time. Um, it could mean uh, qualification will change as well. Uh, and <clears throat> people, people, players, have always said that winning a trophy with a country is the be-all and end-all. It would be the highest honour. Um, and you can see why they would say that on the basis that you've got someone like Cristiano Ronaldo who's won the Champions League five times. Not saying that the, uh, the shine gets taken off it by the amount of times that you, you win it, but um, it has to be said, you know, that look at Ryan Giggs, who won 13 Premier League titles, and two Champions League titles with Manchester United, uh, and yet never played in an inter international tournament with Wales. So you can see why there is an attraction, almost a magnetism for players about playing for their national team. Um, and so as long as that still exists, and what Duncan was talking about before, about the England team's dynamic changing in the last couple of years in terms of the fans and the players, it being successful, so players want to go and play for it. And um, yeah, I, I think... I don't think we're in any trouble for the next 50 years. But beyond that, well, as I said, I think we'll see a lot of changes. Uh, we're already seeing them, obviously. And if uh, Duncan gets his way in VAR, um, you know, gets kaputted rather than introduced, then uh, maybe international football has a future forever. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think international football is special. Um, I think uh, covering World Cups in particular, um, but also European Championships, there's something unique um, about a group of players 
playing for their country um, and the the support behind them um, in a friendly atmosphere, you know, in the, the sort of the conviviality which usually exists between supporters in a, in a country that's hosting a tournament like that. Um, I don't see that going away. I think uh, I think anyone who's experienced it knows it's special and they want to be a part of it. And that's the real attraction of international football is the World Cups and the European Championship, Copa America. It's not really the qualifiers, and the, uh, which can be quite a, a sort of drudgery element to them, um, pretty predictable. I think UEFA have done a good job with the Nations League because they've turned um, what were extremely uninteresting friendlies into uh, a competitive uh, event that the club that teams and players have taken seriously straight away. So I think that helps international football. Um, but there is, you know, the majority of players, there is that desire to perform on the top stage, which is the World Cup, and win it um, and have the ultimate glory of winning something for their country. And I think that applies as much to the big nations that are used to getting there as it does to the the middle tier nations like Portugal, who've, who've never done it before, and then has, you know have a, a great player, a, a, one of the greatest players ever in the ranks, and a, a decent cadre of players around them, and have a chance to win it. Um, yeah, I think it's special, and I don't think that's going to. I don't think that's going to change. So I think we need to worry about international football. Also, has a key thing. It has. It's the the crown jewel for FIFA, and FIFA still controls football. So FIFA has a big vested interest in ensuring international football remains um, something important because that's where it gets the, the body of its revenue to fund the game from. I'll say this as well, Johnny. For the first time in about more than 20 years, I spent the entire World Cup, uh, Russia World Cup 2018, in England and not actually at the tournament, even for a little bit. And um, I got to see firsthand the whole, you know, cliched World Cup fever envelops the country. It does. You know, it's, there's a massive sense of, sort of excitement in the country about the team playing. And obviously the team did well last summer getting to the semi-finals. That helps, obviously. But there's also that massive sort of letdown, the come down when they lose in the semi-final. And the nation literally goes into mourning. The England flags start to come down. And, you know, people generally, are, you know, they, they, you can see and feel the change in the atmosphere around the country um, when they go out. But I said it's worth it for that five, six weeks of sheer excitement uh, that, that happens in terms of the build-up and then the, the preliminary rounds. So that if, if it's having that effect back here, if you like, for the fans who are not in Russia, then that's another reason why it's still alive and kicking. Thankfully, like we don't have that deflation here in Scotland. We just deal with the everyday reality of getting pumped by Kazakhstan. <laughs> Great success. <laughs> Okay, it's time now for the Donkey Awards. And today's is the Jezza Corbin Award for going missing at the height of battle. This is, of course, a reference to the fact there was a million people marching on the streets of London for a people's vote. And, of course, the leader of Labour, who should, you would, have, you would hope, be championing this policy, was nowhere to be seen. Ian, who are your nominations? It's a good one. This I like these uh, our political references. Very, very current. Just uh, getting the golden envelope open there, of course. Uh, well, our first nomination is actually England's all-time record goal scorer, one Mr. Wayne Rooney. 
And he is up for this award because despite his goal-scoring exploits, which some, of course, take, overtake Gary Lineker and Bobby Charlton, in his World Cup finals appearances, 11 games for England, he scored just one goal. So Wayne Rooney is our first nomination. Our second uh, we is uh, Paul Pogba, uh, because it seems, and indeed uh, it's therefore to be seen, that every time Manchester United come up against a decent team, he uh, adopts the old uh, Billy Kirkwood trap door. It just seems to open up for him and uh, he disappears. And our third nomination has to be <clears throat> Mr Mo Salah, the man who tore almost every defence, both domestic and European apart, in last season. And yet, in the Champions League final, well, did anyone see him? Was he wearing a cloaking device? I'm not sure. Sergio Ramos certainly saw part of him. <laughs> well, I have to say, um, the transfer window specialises in obscure references, but I'm, I'm really impressed with the Billy Kirkwood trapdoor, and I'll be even more impressed to see how many of our devoted listeners know what that was a reference to. Um, Paul Pogba is a good shout, um, and I think, uh, I think the World Cup was actually an example of, uh, of uh, why he's a good shout, because he does disappear in these big games. And uh, the, one, the one game that kind of disproves the rule is the World Cup final. Why did he do well in the World Cup? Because he's surrounded by other good players that the opposition had to target. Therefore, the pressure wasn't on him. But, and, and Wayne Rooney's candidacy is, has to be very strong here. Um, I think the prize has to go for to Mo Salah um, for the disappearing act in the uh, Champions League final last season when all the expectation of of, uh, of Liverpool was upon him um, when he was supposed to be crowned the world's greatest player ahead of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi and it all went wrong and he ended up leaving the pitch in tears. So Jeremy Corbyn award goes to Mo Salah. Well, I'll get that packaged up and sent off right away to Liverpool. But unfortunately, that is yet another dunt in Duncan's hopes for getting on the Anfield wrap. Ugh. It's not going to happen now, Dunkey, is it? Devastated. Absolutely. He's, 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 he's got more chance oh. doing a duet in the John Barnes wrap. <laughs> I'm crying more heavily than Mo Salah at present. Well, it's time to wrap this particular transfer window up. But fear not, we will be back on Friday to fulfil all your podcasting needs. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window account at Transfer Podcast. If you want to speak to us individually, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. And more importantly, the guys are at Garbo SJ for Ian and at Duncan Castles. Much more sensible Twitter account name uh, is for Duncan. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, do us a favour and go into iTunes and give us a five-star review. This helps us reach as many listeners as possible, as the more reviews we have, the higher we turn up on searches. Until Friday, thanks for listening. <laughs>